Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. God's word, given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, without error. It's given to us for our good. Let's give our attention to its reading. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. The Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Amen. Jesus says... Always pray and don't give up. How is it that we show that we trust our God even when this life turns upside down? We always pray and we don't give up. What is the strategy that Jesus gives us to navigate the complexities of this life with all of its twists and turns and all of the times where we say to ourselves, I am barely holding on to my faith right now. As Jesus says, always pray and don't give up. For many of us, life often feels like a a painting that is less than halfway finished. And and you look at the canvas and you say, uh, there's no way that the artist is going to be able to bring all of this together until you see the finished product and it is something beautiful and breathtaking. Or perhaps like a complex piece of clothing that needs to be built by hand over time and and you see it right at the beginning and you see all of the various fabrics and pieces of thread strewn about seemingly in chaos until you see the end, a beautiful uh, hand-spun woven piece of clothing full of vibrant colors. That is what God is doing with our lives, pulling the various threads together and he calls us to pray and to not lose heart and to not give up. Our life-transforming reality is this. This world rejects the reign of God in Christ, rejects God as their king, and because of that, God's people will suffer in this world. But we show our faith in the love and the goodness of God as we persevere in prayer, and we show our trust that he will make all things right just as he has promised to do. This world rejects the reign of God in Christ, and because of that, God's people will suffer. But we show our faith in the love and the goodness of God, and also our trust that He will make all things right, uh, just as He has promised that He will do as we persevere in prayer. Three things today. First, we'll think of prayer as a duty or a delight. 
Secondly, we see a picture of perseverance. And thirdly, the comfort to continue. Duty or delight, a picture of perseverance and the comfort to continue. Let's think about how this passage connects to what we have just seen in chapter 17. Chapter 17, Jesus is teaching us about the kingdom of God. And we might summarize what he was teaching by saying this. He calls us to have the faith to see the presence of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is present in our world. And Jesus calls us to have faith to see that. He also calls us to have faith to trust in its future coming. That's what he was teaching us in chapter 17 or the end of chapter 17. And the reason we need to be reminded of that is because there's tension between what Christians know is true. That Jesus Christ is reigning and ruling at the Father's right hand. That his kingdom has come in powerful ways, even in more powerful ways that we saw at the resurrection of Christ. And at Pentecost, that the kingdom developing in these powerful ways. And yet, until the return of Christ, that kingdom will not be fully manifested in its final state. And so Jesus' call to prayer in this passage is instruction on how to live in that tension. How do we live in the tension of knowing the presence of the kingdom of God and knowing the reign of Jesus Christ and yet not seeing it? Remember, Jesus says in the end of chapter 17, you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. In other words, you will long to see Jesus Christ reigning and ruling in fullness and all of the world recognizing that. But you will not see it. So Jesus' call to prayer in this parable is instruction on how to live in that tension. What's nice about this passage is Luke tells us what the parable is about. Not every parable is that way. You have to kind of go down into it and and try to draw the lesson out. But this parable is kind of like walking up to a locked door and finding the key hanging right by the side. The key hangs right at the door for understanding this parable. We see in verse 1, we should always pray and not lose heart. Uh, The word that caused the translators to to say should is a very important word. It's a word that's sprinkled all throughout the Gospels. And Jesus will often say things like, it is necessary that the Son of Man should suffer. Or, it is necessary that I should depart to go and be with my Father. This is the same word saying that prayer or always continuing and persevering in prayer is necessary and important. So we see in this passage what Jesus is doing is highlighting the importance of prayer in the Christian life. It is essential. If you want to have a vibrant and strong spiritual life lived before the face of God, prayer is an indispensable part of it. John Calvin called prayer the chief exercise of faith. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ, that the primary thing that they will do is pray. He, he also said that it was the means by which we daily receive the benefits of Christ. Calvin's view on the Christian life is that all that we do, whether it's talking about our standing before God as forgiven and righteous, or our sanct- the sanctifying grace that we receive to become more holy and more conformed to the image of Christ, that all comes from Jesus. And the benefits that he won in his life and death and resurrection. And Calvin said that prayer is how we daily receive the benefits of Christ. John Knox was a man who who spent time in Geneva, was trained in many ways uh, by John Calvin. And he called prayer an earnest 
and familiar talking with God. We should ask ourselves this morning, is, prayer, is our prayer both earnest and familiar? Is it familiar enough that when we come before the Lord, it's something that we do regularly? And is it earnest in that we seek God and do so intentionally? The necessity of prayer is, of course, highlighted for us in the life of Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, he is the praying Savior. We read in Luke chapter 5, Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and he would pray. Luke chapter 6, Jesus went out to the mountain of to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. He is a praying Savior. He gives instruction on prayer. And what we see is that prayer is indispensable to the Christian life. Just uh, one more quote. J.C. Ryle says, The subject of prayer ought always to be interesting to Christians. It's a good way of putting it, a good Englishman there with understatement. Always should be interesting to Christians. Prayer is the very life breath of true Christianity. Here it is that religion begins. Here it flourishes. Here it decays. Our life in Christ will flourish or decay according to our prayer. When we come to passages like this that remind us of the importance of prayer, uh, one of the things that normally happens is we begin to feel conviction. A lot of us will say, well, I don't pray as much as I should. I have to get better at praying. And pastors will often challenge in saying, yes, we do need to get better. And that's a legitimate thing to do. But one thing that I'd like to do this morning in considering this is drawing us into the delight of prayer, pointing us to the fact that prayer is a delight. God has given it to us for our joy in Christ. Jesus shows us this in his own life. The way that he ordered his days, the way that he prioritized his time, shows to us and it proves to us that he knew about the delight of prayer, that he had joy in communing with his Father and communing with the Holy Spirit. Even as he enters suffering, the source of joy that he keeps coming back to again and again is communion with his Father. He is the Son of God. The Son of God who left heaven's glory. And so his, as he is yearning for that, that glory to be realized once again, he keeps going back to prayer, remembering who he is as the Son of God. Secondly, he is the Son of God who obeys. Who obeys in all of the ways that Adam did not obey. In other words, he is showing to us exactly what it means for a human being created in the image of God to delight in communing with God, showing us all of the ways where Adam failed, Jesus shows us dependence upon God. In a sin-cursed world, dependent upon God as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, the prayer life of Jesus, his patterns of communing with God, that is part of the righteousness that is credited to us as we look to Christ in faith. And God says you are forgiven and you are granted the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Part of that righteousness was, was his persistence and perfection in communing with God, the Father. The Son of God who obeyed for us. So it's not just a pattern or an example. When Jesus goes out to the mountain to pray, he is fulfilling all righteousness for us. So when we're called to have faith and believe the gospel... We're placing our trust in the Son of God who showed this pattern for us and who fulfilled it 
for us. And then not only that, but he is the Son of God who prays for his people. He prays not just for himself, but he prays for us. And we read that even now, Jesus Christ intercedes for us before the Father, and he lifts up prayers for those whom the Father has given to him. We ask, how do we delight in prayer? It would be great if we could delight in prayer and to do it more and more, but how do we do that? And it's true that we can't do that on our own. It's not something that we can do merely on our own or merely through effort. But as God calls us to pray, John Owen pointed out that just as Christ intercedes for us before the Father, so the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we pray so that our affections are stirred and so that our attention is brought to the object of our prayer, the triune God. Our affections are stirred. Our attention is brought to the Father. Owen comments on Romans 8. And Romans 8 says this, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray or what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And some people have said that this means that our prayer in the Spirit needs to be some kind of ecstatic thing that goes beyond intelligible language and is filled with our mumblings. And that's not what's going on at all. Owen shows us that what this means is that as the Spirit works in us to bring our affection and our attention to God, what happens is there's a depth of intensity and a laboring of mind as we commune with God that, that cannot even be captured in words. It's communing with God done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we need to lean on the power of the Holy Spirit. The call upon us is very simple. It's like the call of the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ. Lay aside everything that is in you and trust in him. So it is similar in prayer. Do not trust in your own power to pray or to pray powerfully or to pray correctly. The Spirit intercedes for us, stirs our affections. And so give yourself to the practice of prayer and watch the Lord by his grace work in you. Romans 8 is a key passage for understanding what Jesus is talking about today and persevering in prayer. So we will come back to it in just a minute. But first I'd like to highlight something about what all of this means when we consider the duty of prayer versus the delight of prayer. It teaches us something about the character of God. This is something that we see consistently in how God works for us and what he calls us to do because God consistently will bind together what we need with what will give us the most joy. I'll give you an example. Jesus commands us to repent and believe in Christ. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. But he does that not so that we lose our independence, but so that we might receive eternal life, that which is best for us. Jesus, or God calls us to flee idols. Flee idols, but he does that because we will never be satisfied fully in anything other than himself. He calls us to look to himself because he is the one who will give us the most joy. So God is consistently binding together that which we need with that which will bring us the greatest amount of joy. And so it is with prayer. He calls us to it. And as we commune with God in prayer, we grow to delight in it, just as our Savior did. So do not think of it merely as a duty. Think of it as a delight. In this parable, we see a picture of perseverance, 
a picture of perseverance. There's a specific reason that Jesus gives us this lesson through this parable. We are to persevere in prayer because, as we said, the disciples will long to see, the followers of Jesus Christ will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but they will not see it. In his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper says that prayer is not a domestic intercom. It's not like living in a mansion house and you need to figure out some way to communicate from one end of the house to the other. It's not a domestic intercom. It is a wartime walkie-talkie because prayer is something that we need because of the battle we are constantly engaged in. Spiritual battle against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. It is given to us so that we might survive, so that we might be given help our time of need. This parable is very simple. Two main characters, an unrighteous judge and a widow. We get a sense for how unrighteous the judge is when he says that he neither fears God nor respects man. In other words, he rejects the entire law of God. The first table of the law, the first four commandments uh, outlining man's duty to God. The second table of the law, the next six commandments outlining man's duty to his fellow man. This unrighteous judge, think of him not as necessarily as a judge in a courtroom, but someone who's handling the local affairs. This judge rejects all of that, unrighteous to the core. The widow, of course, would be from a low-class position. It would have been common in that time. If you wanted to have something done by the local leader, you would have to pay a bribe, or you would have to use some of your power or influence that you would have had. And this widow, of course, would have had none of that. All she has is her persistence and her desire to see something done. This widow would have been feeling the oppression and the mistreatment of someone who is rising against her. She knows that if the rights were honored, if, something were, if someone were to look at her situation objectively, she would be vindicated and this enemy of hers that she talks about would be punished. In this way, the widow illustrates for us the plight of God's people in this world and in this age. Those who live according to the call of God, who calls us to live the way he originally intended for us to live, with obedience to him, glorifying him, and enjoying him forever, in the midst of a world that rejects that, in the midst of a world that does not live the way God has called us to live. And so God's people are called strangers. God's people are called exiles on the earth. Because we live under the ultimate reign of our King Jesus. We live under his reign. And though he is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, this world does not submit itself to him. This age does not submit itself to Jesus Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That is where our ultimate citizenship is lives in the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven does not have a seat at the UN, does it? And so we are called in Romans 8, to return to Romans 8, we are called co-heirs with Christ. We are called the children of God. And in a sense, what Paul is saying is that if the world understood the reign of God in Christ, if the world understood the nature of who Jesus is as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, If the world understood that, if this age understood that, it would honor those who belong to Christ as dignitaries or 
honored guests as we walk through this world. But instead, as Romans 8 says, the people of God are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Those who are not honored and our citizenship is not recognized in an age that does not submit itself to the will and the reign of God in Christ. And so perhaps you need to hear today that that is our reality. That in this world, as we walk through this world, we are strangers and we are exiles because perhaps some of us feel a little too at home in this world. It's true that most of us in our part of the world growing up, in in this part of the world, we've experienced a lot of comforts and prosperity and a lot of that is due to much of our society being shaped and formed and affected by the Christian church and by the Christian message of the gospel. And that is a great thing. That has been a great thing. must be careful not to confuse, though, the kingdom of God with a society that has, been, that has experienced a great measure of God's common grace. And that has been a great thing, but it is changing. It is changing. And perhaps we need to be reminded... That today, and each and every day, there are those who bear the name of Jesus Christ, who walk through this world and are imprisoned and beaten and mistreated and even killed. These who bear the name of Jesus Christ, these are our brothers and sisters. More so, more so than those who might live in our own town or neighborhood, but who reject the name of our Savior. So perhaps we, we need to be reminded of that. And perhaps we need to be reminded that if we live in obedience to our Lord and understanding the reign of Jesus Christ and understanding what it means to live in light of his reign, there will be points in our life where we can step out in courage and bear the name of Jesus in certain ways. But oftentimes, the comforts that we are so used to hold us back in certain ways. So we need to be reminded today and to begin to see the world once again, as Paul says, as under the cosmic powers of this present darkness. We need to understand, as as 1 John says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's, It's an age and a world that is enslaved to corruption and to evil. It is a world that does not operate the way that God said that it should. And he calls us to live in the way that he calls us to live, the the right way. So God's people are at odds with this age. And because of that, we cry out for justice. We cry out, and Romans 8 says, we groan inwardly because the people of God who look to Christ and who understand his reign, we groan inwardly because we long to see this world know and recognize its true king. Jesus Christ, who reigns at the Father's right hand. Not only do we long to see the reign of Christ known and manifested, we long to see an end to the suffering and strife, which is all part of of knowing that this world is not the way that it should be. Everything that we experience that's a result of the fall, broken relationships, betrayal by those closest to us, being mistreated, by someone in your life, sickness, chronic pain, death, all of these things point us to the fact that this world is not the way it should be, and it should cause us to cry out and to yearn for the day of Christ. God's people will yearn to see one of the days of the Son of Man, 
but we will not see it. And this world does not operate the way that it should. Because of this, we see this picture of perseverance in this widow who keeps coming back and coming back and coming back to this unrighteous judge. That's a picture of us in prayer because we bring nothing in our hands, just like the widow. There's nothing in our hands that we bring, nothing to the table, no money for a bribe, no power that we can, we- that we can wield. We must lean on the goodness of the one to whom we are making our appeal. And that is why it is good that we do not pray to an unrighteous judge. So this last point teaches us of the comfort to continue in prayer in this oftentimes dark age. We've seen the delight of prayer over the duty. We've seen the picture of perseverance and now the comfort to continue. The point of the unrighteous judge is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus says, look at this unrighteous judge. He rejects the law of God. He does not fear God. He does not love his fellow man. And because of the persistence of the widow, he gives her what she desires. Jesus is not saying that we come to prayer as some sort of stringent duty and we keep coming back and coming back and coming back and eventually he's just going to give in. No, we need to look at what the widow is praying for. We need to understand that as we come to God and as we delight in prayer, our minds and our hearts will be shaped and formed as to how we should pray. What are the things that we should pray for? How should we pray to God? And what are the things that are appropriate to ask? Jesus is drawing us into delight, a delight that will sustain us through this dark age. And that is what it means to be the people of God, to long for, to groan inwardly that this world would see Christ as he is. Jesus argues from the lesser to the greater to say the unrighteous judge, uh, the unrighteous judge hears the prayer of the widow. He grants her request. And how much more will God give justice to whom? To whom? What does our translation say? To his chosen ones, to God's chosen ones. Other translations have the elect. Election, a glorious and comforting truth from Scripture, summarized in this way. Election is the everlasting purpose of God, whereby before the foundations of the world were laid, he has decreed by his counsel secret to us to deliver from curse and damnation those whom he has chosen in Christ out of mankind and to bring them by Christ to everlasting salvation. Salvation is according to God's decree, even before the foundations of the earth were laid. And Jesus mentions this in order to teach us that if God has shown his love by choosing you, by plucking you out of the whole human race, even before the foundations of the earth were laid, don't you think he will remain faithful to his promises that he has made to you? Don't you think that he will honor his word and give justice to his people to whom he has promised justice? So you say, well, if God is sovereign, if God has decreed all of that, the end from the beginning, why do we even pray at all? Two things we might say to that. The first is just as we saw with Jesus, just as we, as we see with his life, we are called to delight in communing with God. It is for our good. It is for our joy in this age. And the second thing is that when we neglect prayer, 
We not only neglect what we are commanded to do, but we neglect to give God the glory in our lives because in prayer we are acknowledging Him that we are acknowledging to Him that we need Him to accomplish all of those things which we cannot do. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He loves us as a father, yet he is enthroned in the heavens, more powerful than we can possibly imagine. Our prayer becomes a testament to his power. And when we pray for something over and over and over, like that God's kingdom would come, because really that's what this parable is about, praying that God's kingdom would come, that justice would be done on the day of Jesus Christ. When we do that, our lives become a testament to God's answering of prayer. One thing I've learned in, in my life is that when you pray about everything for which you can possibly pray, you see a lot more answered prayers in your life. When you pray for everything for which you can possibly pray, you see a lot more answered prayers in your life. And when that happens, you are forced to glorify God because of it. God chose you in Christ. He is not an unrighteous judge. He will honor his love for you. He will honor his promises for you, for those who have faith in Christ. So pray that his kingdom would come and we will see this passage come true on the last day. The last call from Jesus needs to be a strong reminder to us. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's not easy, oftentimes, in our life. Uh, we live in this oftentimes difficult and dark age, and many times where we say, I've had enough of this faith. I've had enough. I don't want any more. Deaths of loved ones, broken relationships, temptations to sin, the monotony and pressures of daily life or family life, physical or emotional pain, suffering, and other things, receiving mistreatment at the hands of others. Jesus says, always pray. And do not lose heart. One of my favorite authors, Ravi Zacharias, makes this illustration and we'll close with this. None of us ever know what God is exactly doing with our lives. But he is holding the various threads of our lives and he will pull them together to make something beautiful in ways we never could have known. Zacharias uses the illustration of the process of making an Indian sari which is a beautiful piece of clothing worn by a bride on her wedding day in Indian culture. Usually these saris, when they're handmade, they must be made by two people, oftentimes a father and a son. The father will sit above on a platform, the son will sit below him. And surrounding the father is all the different various kinds of thread, sitting in what seems to be complete chaos, strewn about brilliant colors, but there's nothing to it, and it seems like it is so chaotic. The son's job is very simple. All that he has to do is watch his father up above him doing something with all of these threads. And every time that he nods, the son just uses a very, takes a very simple piece of machinery, moves it to the right and to the left. Waits for the next nod, moves it to the right and to the left. It's incredibly simple. It's probably even very monotonous. Kind of like the simple calls upon us to trust and to pray and to not lose heart. And all the while, the father is doing something with these various threads and pulling them together seemingly out of complete chaos. And what you end up with is one of the most beautiful articles of clothing that can be made by human hands. One sari takes days and days to make tireless work, but at the end, you've got a wonderful blend of vibrant colors and beauty. 
And if God loves you and has loved you before the foundations of the world, there is no doubt that he will take the various threads of your life that often seem completely chaotic and he will make it into something beautiful. He works all things together for good to those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, do not lose heart. Maybe for you the big challenge is even getting into the fight and beginning for the first time to embrace that we are strangers and exiles and we are to yearn for the day of Christ. But when he comes, will he find faith on the earth? Desire to be the kind of person that would be found faithful if you were present on the day when he comes again. And the best way to do so is to persevere in prayer and to not give up. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these words, may they sink deeply into our hearts. We thank you and we praise you for them, for for your scripture, for the Bible, for your church, for this community of saints, uh, this group of believers, Father. We thank you for your gospel, for the gift, the delight of prayer. May we learn it more and more, even as we trust Christ alone. And Father, we know that you will sanctify us and bring us where we will see Jesus Christ stand on the earth. We look forward to that day. May it come quickly. Amen.